Well, if you would this morning, please grab a Bible and turn in, in it to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We are in what's um, at the, just a reminder, we are at the Feast of Booths with Jesus, a big, huge celebration in Jerusalem. And Jesus has snuck in secretly, not seeking his own glory, but he's come there to teach. And, he's, and as he does so, he starts making waves. Now, I talked with the kids a little bit about this, but anybody here make assumptions about things? Exactly, all the time. We live in a... <laughs> the only way we can function, really, is we have to assume certain things to be the case. We assume that when we get up out of bed, we're not going to float to the ceiling. We, <laughs> some of us would kind of like that because it would feel better than hitting the floor. But we, ass we assume that, there, that there's going to be food in the fridge that we can eat. We assume that we are, we're going to be able to put our pants on. We're, we assume that we're going to um, be able to speak and do certain things. And we make assumptions about, <laughs> I mean, even this morning, we may... I came in assuming that all the technology was going to work just fine because no one no one touches it during the week. <laughs> well, as you might be aware, things aren't always the way we assume them to be. Isn't wouldn't that be the case? The question is, is how do we respond when they're not what we assume them to be? Do we stay stuck in our assumption and fight that fight with that tooth and nail? Or do we seek to actually know? So about a year, uh, I know, not a year ago. Um, I even have it down here. Let me just read it. Um, March 19th, 2019. He's not here, so I feel a little, little bad picking on him. I'm not trying to pick on him. March 19th, 2019, I got an email out of the blue from Mr. Bill Boswell from the Pastoral Search Committee asking if I would be interested in considering the role of lead pastor. And I responded to that email the same day. And I assumed that I would hear back relatively quickly. <laughs> now, okay, let, me, let me caveat. This, is not, this is, says nothing about Bill's ability to respond to emails. Okay? This is God's providence. So I... Wait... And I wait, and we're we're pushing on a month here, and so I ask, I ask one of the pastors at the church we were part of before, and I ask, well, how long should I wait on this kind of thing? Because I'm assuming let's get the ball rolling if this is actually going to happen. Um, and he says, well, just wait a month, usually between meetings and stuff like that. So I said, okay. Month came and went, and I sent a follow-up email saying, hey, just. Want to know if there's anything I can provide for you guys? Um, and at that point, I was kind of assuming, you know, I I should maybe have a have a drop dead date for of moving on. So I, I assumed that <laughs> here we go. I assumed that this wasn't really starting off well. This wasn't really going to take off. So I, put a, so I put a marker on my calendar saying, this is the last day. If I don't hear from them by this day, i gotta, I got to move on. So I, in that moment, I had, I had my date, and I was, I was content with my assumption that I was content with my assumption that this wasn't going to work out. And all of us are there in some form or fashion with things in our lives, whether it's big decisions like taking a new job, getting married, or stuff like that, or even the small things like I mentioned, like food, on, food in the fridge or being able to put our pants on in the morning. It's how we make sense of our world. But, in a, but because of the state our world is in, both as fallen fallen because of sin and our nature as fallen creatures because of sin, and that's a correct and confirmed assumption, by the way, 
We can sometimes get things wrong. We can sometimes miss an opportunity. So here's the big question for us today as we read God's Word. Are we assuming Jesus? Are we assuming who He is and what He's, what he's come to do, or do we seek to know Him and believe Him? Do we assume we have Him figured out or do we set those at his feet like we did our cares and anxieties and seek to know him and believe him? So, would, with all that said, would you please stand with me? Hopefully you've gotten there to John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. <clears throat> Let's listen to the word of God this morning. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Ah, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Never see. What we're hopefully going to see in this passage this morning is that assuming Christ rejects him, but believing Christ knows him. Assuming Christ rejects him, but believing Christ knows him. <laughs> see, the people of Jesus' day were not really different when it came to making assumptions about Jesus. They thought they had him figured out. They thought that he was coming for his own glory, which he debunked. They thought they were judging him rightly, as we talked about last week, but they were judging him by appearances. But when they assumed that they figured, had figured him out, they stayed in the dark about him. But Jesus didn't come for darkness, did he? He came for light. And those who believed in him began to lay aside their assumptions about him. Now remember, we're in the Feast of Booths and there's a huge number of people from all over the known world at that time, at least as far as where the Jews had scattered, which is what the, dis the dispersion means. We'll get to that later. Jews from the outer portions of Israel, from the Hellenist world, the which is the Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, and then also there's this inside cluster that's divided into two groups. One is the, the locals from Jerusalem, the local yokels, and then there is the local yokel leadership, the religious authorities. And each of these groups makes assumptions about Jesus that they either hold on to and reject Jesus or they open their hands and believe him. So here we go the first challenge that Jesus issues to their assumptions is that the Christ isn't just a man. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? <laughs> but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
crowd in the passage we studied last week was floored, (laughs) if you remember, that anyone would be seeking to kill Jesus. They even said, you have a demon. You're a crazy person to think that. Who's trying to kill you? But the people who lived in the vicinity of the big leaders, I think had some inside information. A lot of of the scholars and commentators that I read agree with this, that this idea, this plot, this scheming, this seeking to kill Jesus became known in, in Jerusalem. They knew the intentions of the leaders. So when Jesus starts teaching and the religious leadership doesn't do anything, they start to speculate. And their speculation, they, it's like they almost get it right. They almost get it right. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Well, as we'll see in, for the rest of the book and have already seen to some extent, they don't really know that or they reject that outright. But this is a, this is a divinely inserted pause in the hostility towards Jesus. And with that pause, faith can come in. Can. Doesn't necessarily mean that it will. And it opens up the door for speculation about Jesus. And they almost get it. Except one thing trips them up. What is that one thing? Their assumptions. What, is it, what do they say? They say, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 27. They assume only the earthly, material reality of Jesus. That he's just a man like any other. They don't know or they don't even pause to consider a heavenly mission that he's on. We know where he comes from. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been wrongly categorized or wrongly judged by where you grew up, what your hobbies were, where you work, what education you do or don't have, what side of the tracks you lived on or what side of Main Street you lived on, or who your family is, your family has a certain reputation, good or bad, People make assumptions about all sorts of things and we try to categorize people and it's no exception with Jesus. And these people are acti- actually acting a lot like people in our day. They see the Son of God, the Christ, in their midst saying supernatural things and doing supernatural things And they are so earthly-minded, materially-minded, or focused on what they believe they know, that's the assumption, that they look at Jesus and say, he's just a man. They, quote, judge by appearances, as Jesus warned against in the passage last week. So the question for us is, do we assume that Jesus is merely a man, only a man, Therefore, he's just like us, and we don't have to submit to him or worship him or believe him. Well, the truth is, yes, he is fully human. Scripture bears that out again and again and again. He got tired. He got hungry. He wept. He died. Yes, he's fully human, but he is not less, and he is not less but he is certainly more. And what's interesting is that they would know that if they had read their Bibles. What do they say? They say, we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Is that teaching in Scripture? No. It's, no. No. There was a popular teaching going around in an effort to make the coming of Christ seem even more amazing than it was 
and to disassociate it with the fallenness of humanity, that the Christ would suddenly appear in power, coming out of nowhere. Well, there's a little bit of irony there because they thought, they thought Bethlehem, they thought Nazareth was nowhere. And they thought babies aren't really that important. And they certainly thought they were more important than, than our culture does today. But when Jesus comes on the scene, a baby born in Bethlehem, as the scriptures say, a boy who has to flee to Egypt with his parents to avoid being killed with all the babies in, of Bethlehem by Herod, as the scriptures predicted, who then comes back as the scriptures say he's supposed to, who lives in as a man in Nazareth of Galilee of the Gentiles, as the scriptures say, who begins his, and ends his ministry as a man who, quote, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, which is directly quoted from Isaiah 53, verse 2, as the scriptures say, this crowd disbelieves him on their own faulty assumptions. Their assumptions get in the way, and they reject him. So how does Jesus respond to this? You know me, he says, in verse 28. You know me and where I have come from. That's earthly knowledge. But I have not come on my, of my own accord. Basically, Jesus is saying, if I were just a man, I would be out here trying to toot my own horn, charting my own destiny, trying to dominate you, trying to be the reli religious and rev political revolutionary that you wanted me to be. But I'm not. He who sent me, he says, is true. That means God the Father really did send me. So when they assume he's just a man, Jesus, in his teaching, aims to lift their gaze heavenward. And we as the church need this. We need this. We need Jesus to do this for us. We need to be reminded that the Lord is the Lord of, of earth and heaven. Reality in God's world does not dismiss either. We don't dismiss the physical. We don't dismiss the spiritual. And many of us live our lives like God has not come down. Many of us live our lives as though God is not still on the throne in heaven. And many of us who believe, especially in times of temptation and sin, can be tempted to disbelieve that Christ is still, is our high priest and advocate who intercedes for us. Are we guilty of the sin of the crowd? Do we make assumptions of knowing Jesus that keeps us from knowing him, from seeing him as God and man as he is? I mean, we even have today popular teaching like they had back then. There is popular teaching about Jesus out there, even in churches that does not agree with what Jesus said about himself and what the word of God that testifies to him, that's his whole book, does not agree with that, but rather makes assumptions of him. You, justifying those assumptions by terms like more relevant, or less offensive, or more spiritual. So the question for us is, are we listening to what Jesus says for those of us who do believe him who do trust him he has committed praise God to teach us what is true but that's not that doesn't mean that we sit off in the corner with our ear with our hands and our ears we are active in the process by laying down our assumptions about him listening to what he says for the Christ is not just a man in fact, because he is God in the flesh, he is also committed, as part of teaching us what is true, he's committed to challenging our assumptions. That brings us to number two. When the Christ appears, he challenges assumptions. 
Verse 28 again. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I have come from, but I have not come, from my, on, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? He challenges our assumptions. And I have to ask, right at the outset, why? Why? Why do we so often want to assume things rather than really know? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if we get a weird pain in part of our body, I mean, it's a whole lot easier to just say, yeah, that'll go away, I don't need to worry about that or mess with that. Why do we want to assume rather than really know? We may have all sorts of reasons. Ignorance is bliss, we say, or it's easier, or if we just assume we don't really have to deal with whatever it is, in a lot of ways we're afraid of knowing what it might mean and how it might actually change and shape us. And you know what the root of all of those reasons is? It's pride. It's pride. What is pride in this case? It's the refusal to receive God's help to rescue us from our self-created mess. It's to deny that we even have a mess. And our assumptions of not needing God, if we think there's a mess, of our assumptions of not needing God to fix that mess. Pride is the belief that we always know what's best for us, especially when it comes to God and Jesus. But one of the chief reasons Jesus came was to expose that that is a faulty belief. Those are faulty assumptions that have kept us from life which is truly life. And they have kept us from the God who we were made to be with, to know, and to worship. In our pride, we will not seek to know. But thanks be to God that He has taken the initiative. He has come to a proud and sinful people to challenge their and our assumptions. So when Jesus said, you know me and you know where I come from, He means the earthly part that they knew and assumed, but He also uses this as a challenge. He could render it, so you think you know me. And you think you know where I come from. But I have not come from my own accord, or of my own accord. Put another way, in fact, I was sent by none other than God. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. <laughs> you, have to, you have to understand what a, what a bomb he just dropped on the Jews right then. Him you do not know. There is no greater offense for the Jewish ear then and today than to say that they do not know God. That's basically saying, yeah, the whole way you have lived your life, all the times you have prayed, all the works you have done in God's name, all the feasts you have kept, they don't count for anything because you don't know Him. This was a huge deal. Now can you start to see why they're wanting to arrest him? Well, what about for us non-Jewish people? Most, most, if not all of us, come from Gentile, pagan background, at least according to Scripture. Well, we would be told something like this, that all the nice things we've done, all the good deeds, all the sacrifices we have made, all the hard work for others, all the good thoughts, all the staying positive, all the self-improvement, 
all, the, all of these things apart from knowing God, which is not just knowing about him, but being with him, trusting him, daily walking in repentance, faith, apart from knowing God, with all those things, you are still going to hell. How could Jesus say this? Him you do not know. Why? Because they don't believe him. Jesus will tell his disciple Philip later in this gospel, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. All of the Jewish Old Testament, which is our Old Testament, all of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi points to who? Him, not to somebody else. Points to him, and they were to believe what God had said. And here he was, just as promised by God. And they don't believe. They assume and they reject. And then he goes on to say something about, uh, right about on par to saying they don't know God. Verse 29. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. You know, in Scripture there is only one boast. There is only one bragging right that is acceptable to God. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 through 24 says this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, if that passage doesn't speak to Jesus, I don't know what does. He can fulfill that in a way that no one else can. I know him, he says. And all of this is good news. Jesus has... Do you know what Jesus has done? Jesus has loved them enough to tell them the, the truth that apart from believing him, the one who truly knows God because he comes from God, they will perish. And he has loved them enough to rightly claim that he does know God and has been sent by him. Why has he been sent? To save, not to condemn. He's just telling the truth. You do not know him, but I have come and I have been sent so that you will. Jesus wants them to have life. He wants you to have life. This is the work that God requires. We looked at this. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. Look to him and see him as he is. And you know what happens when you do all the faulty assumptions that you have of him will fall off of you like cinder blocks from your back. It's a miserable life trying to hold on to our assumptions of what's real instead of coming to reality himself. And what happens? And though the offense is... Can you imagine the temperature? <laughs> Not just like the fact that it's Israel. Can you imagine the temperature in the city when he says these kind of things? Like... People are seeing red. But even though that's happening, what does it say? Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Answer, no. No one will do more signs. Therefore he has appeared. Or he has appeared Therefore, no one can do more signs. Jesus may say some offensive things, but they are aimed to cut to our hearts, 
to break the chains of sinful assuming from us. Some rejected him, yes. But many people, this passage says, believed him. And here's a key point. They aren't just believing him because of a sign. They're not believing him as a sign worker or as a, just a good man, like the crowd said at the beginning of, of this feast. But they're on the road to saving faith. You want to know how we can tell that? They don't just call him a man. They don't just call him... They don't just point out the signs. They say, when the Christ appears, they are starting to put Christ together. And if you remember what John says in his gospel, that this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One of the requisites to saving faith is that Jesus is known as the Christ the one who is sent from God to save. And it's because he's sent that's where we want to focus on next. Because Jesus is on a mission. Number three, the Christ's mission is Father Word. Yeah, I get to make that up. <laughs> Father Word. He's going to his Father Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. There's an American writer named Ivern Ball, and he quipped once, most of us can read the writing on the wall. We just assume that it's for someone else. See, Jesus as just a man is easy to control. He's easy to dismiss. But Jesus as the God-man, sent from God, on mission from God for salvation? Do you know what that is for the people who want to be in control of their lives and the lives of others? That's a threat. It's a threat to those who presume their leadership. So here they are again, the Pharisees. Sometimes we give the Pharisees a really hard time, and in some senses we should, but they have the same problems that we do. Or we have the same problems that they do. They are sinners in need of a Savior. Except, maybe you're like this, they have gotten really good at telling themselves that when the Messiah appears, Messiah is another word for Christ, when the Christ appeared, he would just be in awe of how well they had been doing and keeping the law and expecting others to do it like they did. And when Jesus comes and challenges their assumptions about that, when he doesn't just fawn all over them, flatter them, this, their assumptions fuel their anger of Jesus because Jesus is not a respecter of persons. God is not like a man, even though he is a, the God-man. It's really easy to find someone who is worse than you. <laughs> we can say things, we can justify in our minds almost anything. Well, at least I'm not like Hitler. Or at least I don't have the temper problem they do. Or I may have issues, but have you seen so-and-so a couple houses down? Or I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. They can't keep their life together. And have you seen their kids? It's easy for the Pharisees to condemn a man for taking his bed home on the Sabbath when they, when they themselves can already walk and already have their beds at their homes. But when God shows up in the flesh, the perfection gap between ourselves and Almighty God 
hits too close for comfort, doesn't it? We can't play the comparison game with God. It's infinite, the gap between him and us. We are creatures, and he is the creator. And this hits home, especially when you are trying to be in control. To be in the God seat of your life. So these Pharisees and the chief priests, some of whom were actually opposed to some of the teaching of the Pharisees, but a common enemy makes strange bedfellows, as one person said. They sought to arrest Jesus and sent temple guards after him. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, God is God and we are not. Unless and until God says so, the one on his mission is untouchable. Jesus said, and he'll say it later in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. And that doesn't happen until this hour comes. His opponents are sending officers to get him, but Jesus tells them, basically, don't worry, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. See, all of Jesus' life is building to this hour that John has written about. This set time for, for the Christ to do what the Christ was to do. So is that on my feet? And what happens? What God has done. The fact that we are here this morning is because God has done this. He has sent forth his word and it does not return. We're here because Jesus, the word, has become flesh and dwells among us. And we can worship him today because of the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12 says this. And it's about Jesus. I'm get a drink of water before I read it. What's the hour? Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will, shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus would be arrested eventually, but not a moment too soon. He would be falsely tried, but not a moment too soon. He would be nailed to a cross and hung in the air as a criminal, but not a moment too soon. He would die on that cross, but not a moment too soon. And he would rise, but not a moment too soon. And he would ascend to his Father the mission being completed, having at the right time, as Romans says, died for the ungodly. Not a moment too soon. And at his father's side, do you know what he does? He intercedes for the many accounted righteousness while his gospel goes into all the world to bless all the nations just as he promised Abraham. Do we see this church do we believe this? That Jesus is on divine timetable and he cannot be touched unless God says so. And when he was, he accomplished his mission. At this point, these Jews, they don't see. Why? They're still staring at the earth. 
even as Jesus points them fatherward. What does he say? Verse 34, You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? They cannot conceive of spiritual realities because they do not believe. And neither can we on our own. What we must be, as Jesus told Nicodemus, we must be born again to see the kingdom of, of God. And so, how do they interpret what he says? They think of the most outlandish thing they can think of and say and speculate that he would go out into Rome and teach the Jews there and he need Greeks and Gentiles who would listen to him. Okay, we have to pause. If God had not promised again and again in the Old Testament that he was going to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, who is Christ, and he has, them saying this from our perspective is almost like God having a sense of humor and hearing them and say, saying, okay, I'll do that. And hasn't that been what God has been doing ever since? where the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out into the nations of the world, doesn't just remain in Jerusalem, but goes out into the nations of the world, and we are the beneficiaries of centuries of that happening. And it is our charge and our privilege to continue that for however long the Lord chooses to stay in heaven before he comes back. Maybe he'll go out and teach the Greeks. (laughs) But there's one thing that I want to focus on. Verse 35. Did you notice the massive assumption the Jews made right here? The Jews said to one another. Did you hear that? The Jews said to one another. Who is in their presence? Who is speaking these things to them? They put it negatively. Who did they not ask? Who did they not talk to? (laughs) The one who could give clarity and give them the explanation and the clarity. They could have asked the one who knows all things and could have received truth and wisdom from the source. but they don't. Why? Because Jesus spoke the truth in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Because he knows all things and he has come. He says, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So where's the best place for people who love the darkness to stay? With other people who love the darkness, rather than coming to God. But is that the aim of Jesus Christ, for people to stay in darkness? No! Christ wants people to come to him. If you have questions of what he said, of what he says, I have notes of my in, in an online Bible, and most of them are big, huge question marks. Do you know what I do with those question marks? And we must do. We must ask the one who knows. God himself. God, teach me. If you have questions of what he has said, come to him. If he has exposed you, has made you aware of your sins and your separation from him, do not stay away from him like these people did. Come to him. Confess your sins. Confess and forsake your sins as you believe him as he is. The one who is not sent to condemn. 
but to take away condemnation, to set you free, to give life by giving His. The passage we read at the beginning of our time, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. For as Jesus says here, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The reality is is there, there comes a time when people will not be able to seek the Lord. They will not find him. Not that they necessarily wanted to, but that, that that becomes no longer available. And for the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day, there came a time when seeking and finding Jesus was no longer possible for them. They had missed their Christ. And for us here today, there will come a time when the full number are gathered in in the door of salvation, just like the door of Noah's ark will be shut There's good news, but it is not closed yet. And because it's not closed yet, let us hear and heed what Jesus says and proclaim likewise as the writer of Hebrews does in chapters 3 and 4. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For us who believe, Jesus said this exact same thing. Did you know that? Jesus told his disciples that they would seek him and that where he was, they could not come. He has ascended to be with the Father in the heavenly kingdom and we can't come? Well, hold on. Let's be encouraged by what Jesus said to Peter. Same Peter who is going to reject him and be restored said to Peter, who asked him in John chapter 13, verse 36, he said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. See, there's hope for the one who trusts Jesus. Jesus' fatherward mission does not leave us here ultimately, but takes us to be with him forever, to know him forever, to be known by him forever. Assuming Christ rejects him, but believing Christ knows him. And him, him is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is not just a man. He appears and challenges our assumptions and his mission is not here only, but Father Word. Will we believe him and lay aside our assumptions and come to know him? So I assumed this, this email that I had gotten from Bill wasn't going to go anywhere after I didn't hear back for a while. And I kid you not, the day I was going to say, I'm moving on. May 1st, at 7.24 p.m., I get an email from Bill saying, hey, we're still interested, can I call you? And about this time last year, you guys, by the grace of God, called me to be your pastor. I don't think about it much, but I wonder sometimes, what if I had stuck with my assumptions? What opportunities do we miss when we stick with our assumptions of Jesus and seeking to know him? Because being here 
it'll be a year in September. But being here for these months, I can't tell you how much more of the grace of God that I have seen in my life and the life of my family that would not have come if we had stuck with assumptions. So will we trust him today? Will we trust this Christ as the Christ for us? Assuming him rejects him, but believing him knows him. Let us seek to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you know better for us. Thank you that you know what we need, when we need it, how we need it, And that at the right time you came. Not for our condemnation, but for our salvation. Lord, thank you that in the face of a ton of hostility, you continued to preach the truth in love. And that we get to be the beneficiaries of seeing some people, many people, it says, believed in you. And that because people believed in you and proclaimed you, we get to be here. We get to be here because, again, as, you, as we said in the beginning, and as your word said in the beginning, your word does not return to you void. What you purpose, you will do. And we are so thankful that you have decided that we should be a part of it. Oh, Lord, fill us with gratitude and joy in knowing you today. Lord, let us be with Paul like Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. But that we get to know you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.